Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is, what is dynamic scoring? We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. With our IPI Policy Basics podcast, we are building an audio library on basic policy concepts and topics for those who want to learn and understand how to think about policy or who need to get up to speed on a particular issue, of course, from our limited government free market position. And so today we're going to talk about what is dynamic scoring. And I'm joined today by our resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews. So Dr. Matthews, um, on today's topic, there's a great danger of us getting too deeply into the weeds, Mm -hmm. and we'll probably need to avoid that. But this is an important topic. And I'd like to start off by talking about the grief that weather forecasters get for being wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, Weather forecasters are generally pretty reliable, but they never get it exactly right. They never get it exactly right because there are so many variables going on. We just we we don't yet have an ability to come up with precise, exact weather forecasts more than just like a few hours out out from the moment, just because there are so many different things that can change. Right. But if you think weather forecasters have trouble getting their forecasts down, uh, you have never really paid much attention to government forecasters because government forecasters get it way worse than weather forecasters. The only people I know of who can make predictions and get them even wrong, more wrong than weather That's exactly forecasters right. and still keep their job. That's exactly right. And when we say government forecasters, they're not forecasting the weather. What government forecasters do is they try to forecast the economic results of changes in policy, bills mm-hmm. that are that are proposed, uh, whether they're spending bills or tax cuts or anything like that, uh, it is the job of government forecasters to inform Congress of what they think the likely results would be of those changes in policy. And the same thing, by the way, happens at the state level. Right. I mean, here in Texas, before any legislative session, there's a department of the state government that provides a revenue forecast. They say, this is how much money we think you have to work with during this legislative session. And that can be the result of any number of factors, how the overall economy is going, how the mm-hmm. Texas economy is going, what the unemployment rate is, what the growth rate is, the price of, in Texas case, the price of oil and gas, all those kinds of things. But they have to come up with a revenue estimate so that the legislature can make intelligent decisions. And the same thing happens at the federal level. You want the legislature to try to make the most intelligent decision possible. I'm not sure that ever happens. But in theory, at least, you want them to have all of the relevant data so that they can make a good decision. So when it's time to vote on something major like Obamacare Mm -hmm. or when it's time to vote on something relatively minor like a new spending program or a tax cut here and there or something like that, you get these government forecasts. And they come from the Congressional Budget Office, CBO. Uh, There's also a joint tax committee of Congress that does forecasting, although CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, is the one that's considered authoritative. So you mentioned the difference between minor and major legislation. Mm -hmm. And let me let me tweak that a little bit to say 
complicated versus simple legislation. Yes, yes. So, for instance, I, I remember several years ago when Ross Perot was running for president, mm-hmm. he proposed a gas tax increase for gasoline. Yeah. And I, if I remember right, I think it was 10 or 20 cents a gallon or something like that. And at the time, he said something along the lines of, I, I think he probably did, this is how many gallons of gasoline we use in a year. Right. He, you'd multiply that times 10 cents a gallon, let's say. Right. And that's how much revenue we get without any kind of of a attempt to try to figure out would people drive less? Would it make a difference if it's one cent a gallon versus a dollar a gallon? Right. That would all make a difference. But that's, that's sort of straightforward. Yeah. What you're describing is what we might call like a straight line forecast. Right. right? And not just straight line forecast, but it's, it's a simple thing. Now, when you mm. mentioned Obamacare, yeah. so the Congressional Budget Office has to take this, and there's all kinds of things going on here. Mm. They're trying to estimate how many more people will be insured under this. Mm-hmm. There's was, uh, what, like 20 different taxes in there, how all that would would work against each other and for right. each other and right. whether or not that money would come in or not come in. There is lots of spending things going on. And any one of those things, if you're off a little bit, could end up magnifying the implication. So I would call that really complicated because there's so many variables in there versus we've got one gas tax, we're going to put a little increase on that. Mm-hmm. And ha- what's the impact of that? And we have done podcasts in this Policy basic series before about how complicated mm-hmm. an e- a thing is an economy, right? So we talked, we did an episode on Hayek's knowledge problem where we talked about things are just way more complicated than to think that you could just run things from the top down, right? The economy is just too complicated. And so you, what you just described with Obamacare is an extremely complicated piece of legislation with lots of moving parts. So we do our best to try to figure out what the economic impact of that will be. But the one of the reasons why government forecasters have such a bad track record is not simply that it's complicated. One of the one of the main reasons that they have such a bad track record is that they have typically worked on the assumption that the economy is static, right? Mm-hmm. And so we want to explain sort of the difference between a static economy and a dynamic economy. So if you just assume, like, for, let's go to your Ross Perot example. It's a good, it's a good place to do okay, it. Okay, so let's let's say let's say that the American public consumes X amount of gas and pays X amount of gas taxes, mm-hmm. and you think, well, you know what? If we added an additional dollar per gallon gas tax, then it would raise X amount of money, right? But you don't take into account the fact that if gas was that expensive, people would consume less gas, right? They would take fewer trips, or they might say, I'm only going into town once a week, and I'm going to get everything done while I'm in town once a week. Or I could carpool. I could carpool, or I might buy a car that, that burns less gas. I might buy, I might trade in my, you know, gigantic, you know, SUV, and I might get a more energy-efficient car. Or, or I might get an electric car, car exactly. So it, when you do these sort of straight line static forecasts, it doesn't take into account changes in behavior that people will make in reaction to changes in policy. And the problem with doing it that way is that people do change their behavior in a rational way when policy changes. Consumers change their behavior. Workers change their behavior. Investors change their behavior based on changes in tax policy, tax rates, and things like that. There was an infamous example. Well, there were many infamous examples during the Clinton years, okay? And I can think of three in particular we ought to talk about. Uh, One was the Clinton administration raised the tax on capital gains. Mm -hmm. 
And they projected out that if we raise the tax on capital gains, it will result in all this extra revenue. Well, it raised almost no revenue. And the reason is that investors can choose not to sell. So if the capital gains rate is 15%, they might sell the stock. But if the capital gains rate is 25%, they may say that I'm not selling the stock. Mm -hmm. So they they have control over how many taxes they pay. And so the Clinton administration did this straight line forecast that it was going to raise all this money by raising the capital gains tax, and it just didn't happen. So that's one really, really glaring example. There's another really glaring example, I think, was the infamous luxury tax that the, I Clinton, remember that that. the Clinton administration imposed, yes. right? They imposed a tax, and this was, you know, we're going to get the wealthy, right? We're going to raise more money because of all the wealthy consumption. So they put a tax on yachts mm-hmm. and boats and jewelry and furs. There was a whole whole uh, basket full of supposedly luxury goods that they put this tax on. And it didn't raise hardly any money either. In fact, what it did is it resulted in a lot of American workers who work in those luxury industries losing their jobs. Yes. Massachusetts was having a fit. That's right. Because they made a lot of yachts there. Yeah. And and if you're wealthy, you can say, you know what? I'm not going to buy a yacht at all while there's this luxury tax, or I'm going to buy a lot through uh, buy a yacht overseas through one of my overseas subsidiaries, and I'm going to avoid paying the luxury tax. So what ended up happening was that all it did was hurt people. All it did was put people out of work. It didn't raise the money, but they did one of these silly static straight line revenue forecasts. They said, people buy this amount of luxury goods, and if we slap a big tax on it, we're going to be able to raise all this money. And it's not like the left doesn't know this, because I remember when John Fund, a friend of ours writing for the Wall Street Journal at the time, pointed out that John Kerry, a senator at the time, uh, he may have been running for president, but John Kerry uh, had his had a yacht, and instead of docking his yacht in Massachusetts, where he was going to have to pay this huge docking tax or whatever, he was docking it, if I remember right, in Rhode Island, where he had a much lower tax right, right. they had to pay. And John and John Fund wrote something about this and said, here's a person who's, vote, who's never seen a tax increase he didn't vote for. He loves raising taxes, especially on the rich, but what he's doing himself is avoiding paying, having to pay that tax. And that goes to the point of the left knows that people are going to avoid this. They just don't want to use that in their scoring because mm-hmm. in their scoring, it makes it look like the numbers are bigger. Right. There was another example of this that happened during that same time period where there were several states, and they were they were blue, democratically controlled states. I think Maryland was one of them, mm-hmm. where they enacted a millionaire's tax. And it was a special surcharge on high-income people right. called a millionaire's tax. And what they found is that all they did was drive their millionaires out of the state. Mm-hmm. Because millionaires can pack up and move across the state line to a state that does not have a millionaire's tax. Or at least say they are. They say their new permanent home is this other state, right. when in fact they may live most of the time in that state. That's exactly right. So the, the examples that we've given here underscore this idea that people can and do change their behavior in, res, in response to these kinds of changes in policy. And it really goes to this issue of incentives. If you change the incentives to work, If you change the incentives for consumers, if you change the incentives for investors, then they will change their behavior. And so if they have an incentive to do something, they're likely to do more of it. And Mm -hmm. if they have an incentive to do less of something, they're likely to do less of it. And that's 
the result, that's where we get this, this expression that if you tax something, you get less of it. And if you subsidize something, you get more of it. Right. And, you know, speaking of subsidies, we should point out that this works in both directions. Very often when the federal government creates a new program, you know, a new welfare program or a new subsidy or something, they end up with a lot more uptake on it than they predicted. Right. Because if you, if you create a new program, if you say, Hey, we're going to have free cell phones for poor people you're suddenly going to find out that you got more poor people than you thought you had, right? Because people are trying to take advantage of the benefit. Or let me see. What if you said we have, we're in a pandemic, so let's subsidize unemployment by providing an extra $600 a week plus un- regular unemployment benefits for several months, and then later $300 a week <laughs> plus regular unemployment benefits. Would that subsidize unemployment and you wouldn't have you and you would have trouble finding people who will go back to work? Son of a gun, I think we're seeing exactly that. And and so, you know, we've 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 had some both humorous and heartbreaking examples here of when government forecasters don't take into account mm-hmm. this idea of people changing their behavior in result of in response to changes in policy. So if we could back up just a second, the the assumption that government forecasters use too often is that the economy is closed rather than open, right? That it's not subject to external forces, whereas, in fact, it is open. It's not closed. And they assume that the economy is static, whereas really the economy is dynamic. Uh, things are changing all the time in response to things both predictable and unpredictable. And so if you're going to try to forecast the impact of a government policy, you need to do the best job you possibly can in trying to figure out how it changes the incentives and, and how people are likely to change. And no forecasting method is perfect, but we should at least try to get as realistic as possible. And to do that, we have to do something called dynamic scoring or dynamic analysis rather than static analysis, where you try to take into account if we raise this tax, it's probably not going to raise as much revenue as we think. If we create this new program, it's probably going to result in more spending than we think it's going to result in, just because of these changes in incentives and changes in behavior. So essentially what they're doing is creating a computer model, right, of the yes. economy. And and I've talked to econometricians, people who do this in the mm-hmm. past, and they said what they did is once they developed their model, then they would go back and they would sort of put it in retroactively into incidents that had happened in the past yep. so that we'll go back 10 years of this tax increase. If we had used our model on that and you put all the various variables in there, right. and if it comes out about what had happened, then they feel like that model is is somewhat accurate in predicting how things will happen when you change taxes or change various policies. That's exactly right. Now, the most glaring and humorous example that I can think of of the flaw of government static forecasting is an infamous thing that happened uh, back when Bob Packwood was a senator. And Bob Packwood wanted to make this point. He wanted to make this point of how bad government forecasting does and the fact that it doesn't take into account changes in behavior. So he wrote a bill and submitted it to the Congressional Budget Office, and the bill did simply this. It was a 100% tax, 100% income tax on the incomes of people who made a million dollars or more, okay? And so he sent it to CBO, and he said, score this. And CBO came back with a 10-year forecast, which they're required to do. Mm -hmm. And so CBO projected out how much revenue this tax would raise on millionaires every year for 10 years. Now, if you just think about it for a second, if the federal government was taking 100% of your income in the form of tax, 
would you continue to work? Of course you would not. What's the point? If they're taking 100% of your income in taxes, you wouldn't continue to work. But the CBO did a 10-year forecast. So the CBO assumed that even if we're taking 100% of your income in the form of taxes, you will continue to work for 10 years and continue to pay taxes. So they fell right into Senator Packwood's trap. Mm-hmm. They, they revealed the fact that they did not even consider the possibility that if someone was paying a 100% income tax, that they would just continue to work like a, like a robot, like an automaton, even though the government was taking all of their income. So it's because of foolishness like that that we at IPI and many other organizations have been champions of what's called dynamic scoring, which is where you want government forecasters to do the best job they can to take into account the fact that tax increases almost never result in as much revenue as you think. Tax cuts generally don't lose as much revenue as you think. Spending increases generally cost more than you think they're going to cost because of these the changing incentives and the changing in behavior. Now, what's kind of comical about this at the time we're recording this episode in 2021 is that historically it's been Democrats who have been opposed to dynamic scoring. They've called it voodoo economics. They've called it cooking the books because Republicans have wanted to use dynamic scoring to help justify tax cuts. They've argued that, you know, if you cut certain kinds of taxes, they'll it'll create so much economic growth mm-hmm. that you'll get some revenue feedback. Right. Now, not enough maybe to pay for the whole tax cut. But sometimes you might get more to pay. You, you, it, depending on what depending tax you're on cutting, the, the tax right? and how much you're cutting. Yeah, it, yeah, so some tax cuts might entirely pay for themselves. Some tax cuts might only pay for like half of the revenue loss. Some tax cuts might pay for a fourth of the revenue loss. But it's and not some might be, not, pay, not, for, be, some no, might exactly. not pay for anything. No, I mean, no, that's exactly a right. A child tax credit is nice, mm-hmm. especially if you have children, but it's not clear that you would get any extra revenue from doing that. Because some kinds of tax cuts can result in additional economic growth and some kinds will not. Right. So typically it's been Republicans who have been proponents of dynamic scoring because they, again, it helped them sort of get their tax cuts through. But what's very comical right now is that Democrats suddenly are embracing dynamic scoring because they want to try to use it to get their big spending programs through. Mm -hmm. And they want to be able to argue that if we spend all of this money on infrastructure, for instance, there's going to be additional economic growth and and additional revenue feedback. So essentially their spending is not going to cost as much as it's projected to do. Now, you know, from, from our standpoint, you know, I think my position on this would be kind of agnostic, like maybe it will, maybe it won't. I mean, let, let's see the proof. Let's see the economic analysis. Let's see the justification. If, you, if you're going to argue that additional federal spending on infrastructure will result in more economic growth and more economic activity and that there will be some revenue, fine. I mean, lay it on the table. Let us see it. You know, let us hash it out. But for now, I'm just kind of amused that suddenly – they like cooking the books. Yes. Suddenly they like voodoo economics. They like voodoo economics yes, and is. they like dynamic scoring now because they think it'll help them get their big spending programs through. And I'm going to be skeptical that it actually helps boost the economy much. You may get a little bit of a bump initially, but as you and I've talked about in the past, if the government's spending money, that money has to come from somewhere. Right. So if I'm robbing Peter to pay Paul, that helps Paul, but it, it takes money away from Peter that Peter can't spend. Yep. So I, I, there may be something in that, but I suspect it'll be minimal. 
Well, you know, at the end of the day, it kind of comes down to, do you believe the private sector uses capital more, more efficiently and effectively, or do you believe the government sector uses capital more efficiently? And I know where I come down on that. I think the private sector uses capital more efficiently. So if you really do want as much economic growth as possible, instead of raising taxes and having the government spend money, cut taxes and let the private sector have more money to spend. And it strikes me that that's actually the better approach. But our, our friends on the progressive left really do believe that government uses capital in a wiser and smarter way yes. than, the, than the private sector does. And that's sort of the, the core philosophical disagreement here. So again, the difference between sort of static scoring and dynamic scoring reflects your view of the economy. Do you view the economy as something that is open and dynamic and subject to change, or do you view the economy as something that is closed and static and highly predictable? And the problem is, I think that the obvious answer is that the economy is open, dynamic, and quickly changing. And that's why it makes more sense to try to do more things in the economy from the bottom up than from the top down run by government. And as I mentioned, we've done several podcasts in this series that also touch on that. We've talked about Hayek's knowledge problem. We've talked about the that the economy is impossibly complex, and so it doesn't make any sense, and it's just arrogant for any group of government bureaucrats to think that they can do a better job dictating things from the top down than 330 million Americans make every day in real time from the bottom up. Well, you'll find a lot more about tax policy and economic growth and dynamic scoring even at our website at ipi.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. And you can find out more about the Giving Society by clicking on the Donate button at our website at ipi.org. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.